Welcome to the Defense and Airspace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian from Denver and the sidelines of the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, the messaging challenges the Biden administration faces as it prepares to submit its budget request to Congress now on March 13th. But first, our good friend Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a uh, visiting fellow with the Center for a New American Security. He's one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military, as well as unmanned systems, including Russia's unmanned systems. Sam, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Wago. Before we get started, our program today is brought to you by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. And a note that our coverage of the Aerospace Warfare Symposium is brought to you by GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. Sam, uh, thanks very much again for joining us. The war now is in its uh, 367th day, and uh, Russia uh, is uh, definitely you know, trying or, or moving in the direction of intensifying uh, its uh, offensive. We should say it was kind of a soft launch, right? Uh, maybe until recently. Um, the, the battle is going on around Bakhmut and Lysychansk. Uh, Ukrainian leaders have said uh, that they're not really fighting for the territory, but because it's a terrific opportunity to kill a lot of Russians, which unfortunately uh, is the case. I think unreported in all of sort of the, the perceived Russian advances was a massive tank battle, the largest tank battle since Kursk, um, in which the Russians were badly defeated uh, by all accounts. Um, the head of the Wagner Group, mercenary group, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, is again criticizing Moscow for not giving him enough ammunition. Talk to us a little bit about the big picture. Where are we now and what's likely next before we dive into the details? It is likely that the Russians are going to continue to press around Bakhmut. The situation for Ukrainian military there is very precarious. It's been recognized so by Ukrainian president and by the Ukrainian military leadership. Russians have encircled Bakhmut from three sides. The success came at a very heavy price for the Russians. As before, they've sent waves and waves of soldiers at the Ukrainian positions and literally ground away at every inch, at every at every foot. Uh, this has been a tactic that has proven somewhat successful for Wagner Group uh, as they battled around Bakhmut and other regions as well. So it is likely that these heavy losses are going to lead to a potential Russian victory in Bakhmut. That doesn't mean that situation will change at the front because Ukrainians can withdraw and retrench just west of the city. But the Russians need this as a psychological and a somewhat smaller but still important military victory. So the fighting will actually continue and the Russians will continue to send resources there to, again, score some kind of victory so they can report back to their country, to their population that they are, quote unquote, winning. Sam, tell us a little bit about this uh, tank battle, because it appears it's the largest tank battle uh, since Kursk, which is history's largest tank battle. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what we know about it, because it seems like it was a victory for Ukraine and a defeat for uh, Russian forces. Well, what we definitely know is that Russian military used a lot of their older tanks in this battle. A lot of the T-62s, modernized T-62s, which were first unveiled in the early 60s and were modernized repeatedly by uh, Russian military through the 70s, 80s, and even 90s. So Russia is pulling a lot of these older tanks from storage and sending them against Ukrainian forces. 
at this point, if you were a Russian military, what you're looking for is mass. And uh, they were hoping to send uh, quantities of these tanks against Ukrainian military in the hopes of overwhelming them. Uh, that did not happen. Um, at the same time, again, if, uh, if you're a Russian military and you're looking at the map of Bakhmut, you're seeing that the Russian forces are slowly grinding away and that the Ukrainians are in a, in a bad spot right now. Of course, if you're Ukrainian military, uh, you you actually designate uh, this battle as a victory for the Ukrainian forces. But at the same time, the appearance of these older tanks in the Russian ranks is going to be basically a pattern. And it will continue probably if the war goes for uh, months and uh, throughout 2023, because Russia is now pulling a lot of older tanks out of storage. It is assembling, assembling, cobbling them together. It is modernizing some where it can and sending older ones where it can't. Because Russia has thousands of older tanks in storage, it has, it has a potential stock of a significant number of these main battle tanks that it can send against Ukraine. But uh, obviously, as long as Ukraine has very advanced anti-tank weapons, the Javelins, the Anlos, the Stugnas and others, uh, they can counter these older Russian tanks, which in many cases are not very well protected when compared to much more modern um, tanks like the T-80 or, or the right. T-90 modernized versions. Um, and I should point out, right, in the, in the meantime, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky has called on uh, the European Union to uh, ramp up artillery shell production, saying that's the most important tool uh, we need, and we need about 250,000 uh, rounds uh, a month, which is going to be uh, a challenge. I mean, it's it's doable. We discussed that on the podcast uh, yesterday. Um, Russia's defense minister, uh, Shoigu, uh, has visited the front. Why is that visit significant, Sam? Well, we've been discussing the start of the Russian offensive. We've been discussing when that offensive would take place. There's a general consensus that um, major Russian movements and attacks and counterattacks have basically culminated and resulted in sort of the larger launch of the spring offensive uh, that has been going on for weeks right now. And Shoigu's visit is basically twofold to either officially designate that this new offensive is underway and also to demonstrate that he is a hands-on commander after months and months of critique from rank-and-file soldiers, from pro-Kremlin telegram bloggers, from Prigozhin, even, even Ramzan Kadyrov. Uh, Shoigu finally shows up at the front, hands up medals, sort of he's close to the contact line. He's there physically to demonstrate that uh, he is present on the ground and he's aware of what is going on. Uh, and we, you know, there was uh, a critique is a very elegant way of putting it, I would say, uh, taunting uh, by uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Speaking of Yevgeny Prigozhin, um, the Kremlin told him to get back in his box, although I share your skepticism that, you know, or, 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 you know, leave open the possibility that this is just a contrived feud. It serves everybody's purpose. It allows for the appearance of venting. Uh, and and what have you, right? I mean, we don't know exactly what the, the, the uh, state uh, of the relationships are. But ultimately, one of the accusations uh, that Prigozhin is making is somehow Russia is restricting ammunition from his forces. Uh, the progress that's being made is a combined uh, Russian uh, army, uh, as well as uh, Wagner offensive around Bakhmut and, and that area. What's, what are, what's the, the state of Russia's ammunition stocks? 
The Russians are trying to pull from all over the world. They're trying to pull from Syria, from the North Koreans. Um, the Chinese have not yet, or, or not overtly, or not directly shipping weapons. What do we What do we know about the state of the ammunition supply, and what do Prigozhin's remarks mean? Well, we know that the situation is is rather precarious. We know that the Russian defense industrial sector is working overtime uh, and uh, has been engaged in trying to supply as much of the weapon systems and material as possible under the current circumstances. Prigozhin's comments may actually indicate not just the fact that his own forces may not be getting enough ammunition, uh, but may be indicative of the larger problems experienced by Russian forces throughout the Ukrainian front. Uh, so again, it's not ex exactly clear whether his pleas are going to be heard or whether his very public statement is just that, it's, it's, it's publicity, it's PR. Maybe they're not directed at the highest echelons of the MOD, but probably at the mid-level echelons, which are responsible for logistics and supplies. Uh, but again, uh, what is interesting about his, his very public statements is that this war is playing out on social media as much as, as it is playing on the battlefield. And the fact that someone like Prigozhin can, can, can publicly speak in that manner to not just his own supporters in Russia, but potentially to tens of millions of people around the world who, who can view his Telegram channel is indicative of how much warfare has changed uh, by 2023 and how much warfare can be impacted by social media, by the information environment. And uh, obviously someone like Prigozhin is very well aware of the impact that his videos, his statements, his pleas can actually right. make, not just for the front, but also for the home front for the people in Russia and for various political elites. Sam, tell us a little bit about this unusual cross-border issue in Bryansk. Well, last week, Russian media exploded with news that apparently, or supposedly, several teams of Ukrainian special forces and saboteur units have crossed into Russia, into Bryansk yeah. region, and have conducted bombing and assassination campaigns. The issue got kicked up all the way to the presidential level. A Russian president made a statement. There was very little evidence of such mass-scale activity present in Bryansk. One car was actually shot, one civilian vehicle was shot, somebody got killed, somebody got injured, but there was no evidence of any widespread sabotage activity in the Bryansk region. But people who are already on edge in Bryansk, because that's the region that is abutting Ukraine, are already nervous, already stressed, and obviously whatever happened didn't necessarily assuage their fears. Uh, Russian government may use such an incident as sort of um, as uh, as another opportunity to sort of uh, rally people around its cause. Although, again, um, without uh, significant evidence on the ground or without significant evidence present, it is difficult for people to even trust the official state uh, byline. Right. But this was this was sort of used as a way to demonstrate that um, Ukraine continues to be a danger to the Russian military and to the Russian society, and therefore Russian society and the government must rally together uh, and continue fighting. Of course, Ukrainians have denied it. There was no real evidence of official Ukrainian activity. Uh, some uh, evidence existed that the raid was conducted by ultra-right Russian right. nationalists who are... Right fighting against the Russian state who, or are against the Russian state and its current policies. So it's not exactly clear what happened. Um, 
what kind of activity took place, if at all. Right. And uh, if someone got killed, if, uh, in fact, a civilian car was shot, it was unfortunate that civilians died. But this region, the Bryansk region, is, is very much on edge since the beginning of the war. Um, let me take you uh, to one last question. Drones, one of our favorite topics and something we keep the audience appraised of. You do uh, because of your expertise. Um, you know, there's a concern that Belarus uh, is going to take a bigger role in the war. Uh, and indeed, industrially, it is ramping up. Let's talk about drone production in Belarus and the curious uh, issue of the unavailability of DJI uh, drones uh, in Russia. Right. Uh, so Republic of Belarus inherited one of the largest defense industrial complexes at the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1992. And a lot of Belarusian military weapons and systems are completely compatible with the Russian ones. We also have to remind our listeners that Russia and Belarus are officially in a union state, have been so since 1996. They're not necessarily joined as a single state, but the union state treaty allows for very close economic, political, social, and military cooperation. Russian military conducted lots of exercises and drills with the Belarusians, and the Belarusian military is considered as probably close and nearly integrated into some of the Russian uh, military concepts as, as can be. Belarus is also one of the countries in the former Soviet space that was actively developing and manufacturing military UAVs, loading munitions, ISR drones, combat drones. They even tried to market those drones overseas in competition with the Russian drones um, also. And so recently, last week, uh, there was a lot of news that Belarusian defense industry jump-started the production of military drones. Exactly the types which are fighting in Ukraine right now by both sides and are needed by both sides, especially by the Russians. We're talking loitering munitions. We're talking short and long-range ISR drones. We're talking some of their longer-range combat drones that Belarus has been developing. So why are they doing that? Uh, are they scared that the war may spill over onto, onto Belarus? Are they scared that they're going to be pulled into Ukraine conflict? Or is this um, sort of a much broader policy of possibly supplying and selling these drones to the Russian military, which needs all kinds of UAVs at any given point in this conflict? And what happened with DJI is that uh, if uh, you are a Russian citizen shopping from Russia on AliExpress, you couldn't buy DJI drones for, I think, 24 to 36 hours last week. They were just not available for purchase. And then the, um, the purchasing ability was restored. What's interesting about that is that DJI has officially stated it is not selling and it is not going to support the sale of its commercial drones to Russia and Ukraine. But as I've stated earlier, it was entirely possible to get these drones for all kinds of online and physical marketplaces. And so this was maybe sort of a half-hearted attempt by the Chinese government, uh, which is close to AliExpress as a website, to maybe enforce this ban, which of course is not really a ban because anybody can buy DJI drones around the world and right. send them to Ukraine, as has been happening every day since the start of this war. Sam, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you, Vago. See you next week. And a quick word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now is my good friend and partner in crime, our 
producer Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy commander and public affairs officer. Uh, he is uh, also the co-host of uh, the Cavus Ships podcast, uh, along with our contributing editor, Christopher P. Cavus. Uh, and I should also note that uh, Cervello also is uh, a co-founder of the ProVision Advisors uh, PR firm. Chris, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. And your pinch hitting for Byron Callen uh, of uh, the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, who is en route here to sunny Denver and can join us. Hey, Vago, thanks for having me. Uh, always uh, a pleasure. This is a drum uh, you've been beating uh, on uh, the Canvas Ships podcast. You've mentioned it on our program, and indeed, you and I have been discussing this many years uh, about the imperative that uh, you know this upcoming future year's defense plan uh, is absolutely critical uh, if the United States is to step up uh, the deterrence of China. Uh, walk us through some of um not just the budget themes uh, you're hearing, uh, we've all been picking up, right? I mean, we heard from Air Force Secretary Kendall uh, a few weeks ago when we launched the Air Power podcast, the 12 new starts will be in the program. We hear about munitions, the importance of cyber combat aircraft programs are going to get a boost. What are some other uh, key uh, themes uh, you think that we're going to see when this budget rolls out? Well, so Vago, you know, let, let's start with the first two budgets that the Biden administration rolled out, rolled out um, were really about diversity invest to invest. This idea that you would get rid of um, the old or not as relevant uh, investments and um, purchases over the next couple of years and invest in future years so that you were ready um, for competition. Um, I think they and the world have learned that uh, competition may be a lot closer than we think. Uh, you look at you know what's going on in Ukraine, you look at how the Chinese um, are acting, uh, the most notable being um, the, the Chinese balloon and the fallout from that. Um, so I, I think you're going to see a invest to invest strategy, right? I mean, I think you're going to see short-term investments, uh, money put towards readiness, money put towards munitions, uh, more cyber money. And I think it's the, their horizon is going to become a lot closer. I'm hoping that you're going to see a um, direct tie to the national security strategy and the national defense strategy. Um, and they really make their case in a forceful way, both for audiences at home and abroad, while the money that they're asking for from Congress um, is going to have both an immediate and a very short-term effect on uh, the military's ability to deter and, if need be, deal with high-end competition. Chris, one of the most critical elements of this, and you mentioned it in your squawk on Cavus ships last week, is uh, time versus top line, right? I mean, the importance of time as the most important imperative. Uh, if we, uh, you know, had been paying attention to time, we would be moving faster. Uh, by some accounts, you know, um, I'm I'm here out uh, in Denver and hearing from people about things not moving. Uh, as fast and indeed maybe even moving more slowly. Uh, the late uh, Defense Secretary Ash Carter used to say time is the number one uh, factor, most important factor when he became acquisition executive back in 2009. Talk to us about the difference between time and top line and you know that it actually doesn't matter if we're getting the top line right if the time part is not right. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Um, and folks like Dr. Carter and and others, you, you know, sounded this alarm early on. And then you, you know, I think both administrations, the Trump administration and the Biden administration, um, didn't really pay uh, as close attention to this time. 
uh, factor as they have uh, on top line. And, and, and I mean, I, I think most people understand why, um, because, you know, everything we do in DC and everything we, we do in the budget world is based on money. But I think as you start to think about messaging and as you start to think about measuring the effectiveness of the investments that we're going to make, um, I, I think the first um, you know, group, whether it's uh, DOD, whether it's the White House, whether it's a combination of both, the first that really start to put it and, and make the time component understood to the larger audience, I think they're going to be very successful. Um, you know, Not to mention the fact that time is not on our side when we talk about competing with the Chinese and the Russians, particularly the Chinese. Um, but the more that we're able to show how investments um, either extend a window or work within a certain window or how we're able to, to demonstrate that as we spend more money, um, you, you know, things are able to happen quicker, whether it's procurement, whether it's, um, you, you know, fixing of things and making us more ready. Um, I, I would like to see leadership begin to talk more about time um, because that's really what we're talking about, whether it's this idea of the Davidson window, whether it's this idea about lasting the Chinese into the early and, and mid 30s uh, to be able to prevent conflict. Um, we, we need to have a better sense of how our money and the time horizon fit together. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, one other uh, question, which is messaging around the size of the budget. Um, and, you know, we are approaching uh, a trillion dollars. Certainly this future year's defense program uh, plan uh, will take us there. Uh, if you consider uh, we're about to see maybe an $850 billion request, Congress is likely to pl plus it up. That brings us to about 880. Uh, by the way, there are a lot of other elements of national security. You know, so, I mean, really, when you add it all up, national security is already getting more than a trillion dollars when you add in homeland security uh, in, in, into that e e equation. How problematic is making ever larger budget requests when some Americans are looking at their roads, some of Americans are looking at uh, you know, rail accidents and, and rail infrastructure and raising questions about it? Do you think that there is a, a, a messaging tie-in or a problematic storyline that starts to develop at any point here without sounding uh, a little bit too, 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 too bit of a downer on, on what is generally a positive storyline. We are spending more money and folks are exhibiting somewhat more urgency. Well, uh, first of all, uh, um, and you and I have, have talked about this for years. I, I do not believe having worked in the Pentagon for the bulk of my career, I do not believe that bigger is always better when it comes to the, the defense budget. Um, I think that in, in a lot of ways that bloat and that glut um, prevent us from quickly moving on certain programs and and actually serve as a deterrent to the things that you want to go quicker. So uh, I am happy to see that you know they're going to make up for inflation and, and other key investments. So I am less um, impressed by by the top line of a budget and, and more about where that money is going. I mean, I really want to see um, money going towards munitions. I really want to see it going towards. Um, you know, improving the readiness across all the services. I want to see it go towards protecting um, the supply chain and the workforce chain in, in terms of making sure that people have the relevant skills. Um, and then I want to see it put towards um, making things go faster, even to the point of almost breaking them so that we know what um, a wartime pace might look and feel like. So 
you know, a trillion dollars doesn't really impress me as much as the types of investments that I'd like to see from the thoughtful folks, um, either on the Hill or in the administration, as they begin to prepare for what is likely to be at some point, either a high-end competing economy or God forbid, a wartime uh, economy. Now, just briefly going back to sort of that messaging piece. Yeah, I, I think that most Americans look at um, first of all, they look at COVID and they say, what did almost a trillion dollar national security budget, you know, get me in terms of COVID? Um, it, it took us a while to get the elements of the Defense Department that are supposed to aid in national crisis up and running. We were slow with the um, Defense Production Act. We were slow with other uh, other parts of that. So I, I think that um, whether it's a trillion dollars, whether it's three quarter a trillion, whether it's a half a trillion, I think the Defense Department always and the, the administration, whoever's in, in the White House, needs to do a good job of explaining exactly why that significant amount of money um, is going to keep Americans safe uh, and why it gets a higher priority than all of the other needs that you know we have in, in our society. And to be quite honest, I just don't think we do a very good job of, of doing that. Um, unfortunately, Byron uh, Callen uh, is in transit of uh, the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners. He joins us every Monday uh, for the look ahead, uh, look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Uh, he can't help us with what's on his mind, but we uh, do uh, have his note about what to expect in the week ahead. Uh, why don't you give the audience Byron's uh, assessment of what it is they ought to be paying attention to this week? Absolutely. Big shoes to fill here, Vago. Um, so uh, obviously you are out there um, in Denver at the Air Force Association. Uh, the Air Force Association will hold its warfare symposium March 6th through the 8th. Both you and Byron, Air Force leadership and all sorts of folks from industry uh, will be out there talking about both current and future approaches for uh, for air and aerospace warfare. As we talked about at the top, the federal budget and DOD top line requests for FY22, they should release those numbers and kind of big picture uh, messages on the 9th. And then the actual budget and some of the materials uh, will be released on the 13th. Right. And then other materials will, uh, will, will trickle out over the next week. Um, the Senate Select Intelligence Committee will have a hearing on March 8th on worldwide security threats, um, as will the House Intelligence Committee. Um, they'll have their, uh, their hearing on March 9th. Uh, to talk about uh, worldwide security threats. And so this kind of becomes a foundation for that budget discussion. Um, RUSI will hold its annual air and missile defense conference on March 9th. The Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee will hold their hearing on economic and financial consequences of the federal debt limit. Um, and the House Budget Committee uh, will hold a similar hearing on the fiscal state of the union. Both of those hearings on, are on March 7th and March 8th, respectfully. So a busy week as usual. Um, but, um, you, you know, those are kind of the big picture things that I, I think our listeners need to uh, pay attention to. Uh, Chris, uh, very well done. And I think even Byron would agree with that. <laughs> well, that's high praise. Thanks, Vaga. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, and looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you. Enjoy Denver. Thank you. You can't help it in the Mile High City.